0: Well, we continue this morning in the second part of the Beatitudes. I was ambitious last week and hoping I could get through all 12, but that didn't happen. Um, So we enter this morning to the second part. But uh, before we do that, let's just remember where we are in context, uh, where we are in context. We've seen in Matthew 1 through 4, we've seen in Matthew 1 through 4, we've seen uh, Matthew really present Uh, to his Jewish audience, that Jesus is king. Uh, He's done that uh, through the genealogies. Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. We've seen him do that through even the situations and circumstances in Jesus' life that fulfill uh, prophecy, that show that he is the ultimate Davidic king who will reign over Jerusalem, Israel, and one day all the nations. And we've seen Jesus' message. Jesus' message in chapter 4 was the same as John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. The idea is that uh, the kingdom of heaven, uh, God's reign through God's chosen king, namely the Messiah, namely Jesus, ultimately, that, uh, that uh, J- uh, Jesus' kingdom has drawn near because the king has drawn near. He's drawn near, and God, uh, as K- God's kingdom draws near, that's, that's a harbinger of uh, great joy for those who are aligned, for those who repent, for those who turn their allegiance from sin and self to God, to trusting God that he will purify them and to, will have their allegiance to following him, those who are repentant, uh, that the, God's kingdom is near. There's, there's great joy for those who are repentant, but there's also great sorrow, great judgment for those who do not repent, who do not bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And then we saw in chapter 4, Jesus start gathering his followers, start gathering his disciples around him. Uh, We saw that that idea of uh, here are the committed followers. They drop everything. They follow him because he is the most important one. He is the king. And then we saw Jesus give foretastes of that kingdom through healings. Uh, The future kingdom will get rid of sin and sickness and death. And so he gives kingdom appetizers, teasers, trailers, as it were. And because of that, he starts, we call it fishing, right? He starts uh, gathering this crowd around him. And we're not sure, are they just coming for the miracles or are they coming for Jesus. And then in response to that, we enter chapter five, this Sermon on the Mount, where uh, primarily he's speaking to his disciples, those who have committed to following him, those who have repented and are following him. But also in the background, there's the crowds, the, the, the crowds. Secondarily, he's speaking to them, those who are near him, and maybe they're there just for the miracles, but he's speaking to them and he's speaking to his disciples. What is What does kingdom righteousness look like? That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about, kingdom righteousness. This is the righteousness contained in the sermon that will be characteristic of Jesus' disciples, those who are repentant, those who are following him. And it's not because they have this righteousness in themselves, uh, but because of what Jesus is doing as the new covenant mediator. The Davidic king is the new covenant mediator. And as those who follow him... And entrust themselves to him, he will give the Spirit, which will cause this righteousness to bloom, to flourish in the lives of his disciples. But the way he started, last week we, we got into the Beatitudes and we asked this question why does Jesus start with the Beatitudes? And what we said is this, right? Uh, the ideas from, say, Deuteronomy 28 that speak of blessings and curses, uh, the blessings and curses that Israel as a whole, as a nation, would experience. If you obey, you will experience this blessing, land, seed, and blessing, the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. And what happened, we said, historically in Israel, and you even see this in the mindset of the disciples, is that uh, corporate reality for a particular nation of Israel was transferred illegitimately to individuals. That uh, individuals began to think, well, if I obey, then God's going to bless me. He's going to give me all these material things. Or, uh, another way to think about it, if someone is rich, if someone is materially blessed, then they must be good with God. And what Jesus does in the Beatitudes is he reprograms that thinking. He's reprogramming that thinking in his disciples and he's saying, you want to know what the good life is? You want to know what it looks like to have the good life? It looks like this. And we have a bunch of paradoxical statements we say, uh, and as a whole, we characterize the Beatitudes this way, flourishing or happy, that's this word, it's this word, you remember blessed, doesn't, doesn't mean God's active blessing, like God's pronouncing a blessing on someone. Rather, this word for blessed is, is the idea of a recognition that someone is living a happy, a flourishing, a good life. So as a whole, the, the Beatitudes do this, they say flourishing, happy are those in these paradoxically lowly states. These don't seem like good states that Jesus is talking about. And who live in this way because, in reality, now and eschatologically, that is, at the end of time when that kingdom comes, they are recipients of great blessing. The blessing is on the future side of the equation, the because side of the equation in these Beatitudes. And what Jesus is saying is the good life, the good life actually looks like this. And so, the main idea of this whole section, which we're going to finish today we started last week, is this, reckon yourself blessed as humble, afflicted, and righteous in following Jesus, because you will have the kingdom of heaven. And we started last week in verses three through six, the first four, we said there's two groupings of four. The first grouping of four, Beatitudes, really deals with, God, uh, with uh, the disciples, right? These are, these are supposed to be characteristic of the disciples, their relationship with God. They're vertically oriented, in other words. The first four are vertically oriented. And the second four, which we're going to cover today, are we could say they're horizontally oriented. In other words, uh, one is their attitude, the disciples' attitude in relation to God. The other is in their relationship to the broader world as they live out their lives. And so just to remind you, let me go briefly through the first four in verses 3 through 6. Blessed or flourishing, happy are the poor, with reference to the spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The good life is the life that says that I have nothing on this earth. That whether I materially have a lot or little, it doesn't matter because internally I recognize that I have nothing. I have nothing in this world. My treasure is not here, in exile away from God's presence. Rather, my treasure is in heaven. So my attitude is utter dependence, utter dependence on God. No matter what my external circumstances are, utter dependence on God as a poor and spirit person, knowing that I will be rich through following Jesus, through repentance, the repentance that Jesus has been calling for in the kingdom of heaven. And I'll have a share in the kingdom of heaven in the future. Blessed, flourishing, happy are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And the idea was, is that mourning ones, we saw the background to this in Isaiah 61, those who mourn are those who mourn in exile. They're away from God's presence. That's happened since Eden for the whole human race, and it happened for the nation of Israel as they disobeyed and went after idols. Those who mourn, those who have repented, who have aligned themselves, they changed allegiance from sin and self to God, they mourn because they recognize the world isn't the way it's supposed to be. Because of their own sin, because of the sin that's in the world, because of the devastating effects of sin in the world, they are characterized by mourning, sadness. But actually, Jesus says, that's the good life. If you're actually mourning over your sin, and the sin in the world, and the brokenness that's in the world, that's actually the good life, because it shows that you are aligned with God, and The promise for them is they shall be comforted. In that future kingdom, God himself will wipe away every tear, every mourning, there shall be total comfort from God himself. And so there's this this inherent dependence on God even as we mourn. It's vertical. In verse 5, blessed are the meek or the gentle or the lowly, for they shall inherit the land. This, uh, the background to this was Psalm 37, and in Psalm 37, what you see is uh, the righteous uh, people, they're being oppressed, they're being afflicted by uh, rich, wicked people, and we've got these poor, righteous people, but what, what's characteristic of these folks is the lowly, the meek, the afflicted, is that they're not, they're not retaliating, they're not aggressive in their response. They're not uh, fighting at all costs to maintain their rights. Rather, what they are doing is they are dependent as righteous ones on God himself, utterly dependent on him to bring justice. And Jesus says that's the blessed life. That's the flourishing life. That's the good life. Why? Because they shall inherit the land. And we said, first and foremost, in the context of Psalm 37 and in the context of Jesus' audience, speaking to Jewish disciples, he's talking about the promised land, that when Christ comes and reigns over this world, he will do so from a throne in Jerusalem over the kingdom of Israel and over the whole nations of the world. And his uh, disciples will be given the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. But then by extension, for Gentile believers, we could say this, that in that future kingdom over the whole world, there is a share in that future kingdom, even in terms of physical land. But the, and that's the, that's the promise. All of these are future-oriented. It's all about the future kingdom. And Jesus saying, look, these are, uh, these are paradoxical attitudes now. They're what the world despises, but they're actually the good life because they show you're aligned with God, and they show what's going to happen in the future. In verse 6, blessed, happy, flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And we said this, right, that along with that kind of mourning idea, the the idea of righteous, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, uh, there's a lack of righteousness in the world, right? There's human sin, human corruption, and so individuals are oppressed, are afflicted, are uh, dealt with wrongly on so many fronts, and whether it's the disciples or just in general at the world of large, but those who are aligned with Christ, those who have repented, those who are his disciples, they hunger and thirst for righteousness for themselves, that they would be righteous first and foremost in their actions, they would align themselves with God's attitude and character, and they want to see that righteousness at large in the world. And the reality is, the promise for the future is they shall be satisfied. We said that, that kind of communicates the idea of thanksgiving full, right? You are uh, you're going to be stuffed with righteousness in the future. When Christ reigns over a righteous kingdom, not only are you as his followers righteous, not only counted righteous, but acting righteous and then the whole world in Christ's kingdom, perfectly righteous. And God says, the future has that for you. And we've seen already in those first four, it's all the adi- about the attitude of dependence. God's going to do these things. Uh, here's a par- the, these are the paradoxical ways and uh, attitudes of Christ's disciples now. But God has great things in store for the future. We said it like this, right? Christ is reprogramming his disciples' mindset for the long game. We play the long game as believers. We are not looking for blessing now, we are looking for blessing in the future. We are looking for blessing in the future, and ultimately, the reward with being God himself. And now, what we do is we enter the second four. We enter the second four Beatitudes and you see a shift. You see a shift. And if the first four were about dependence, dependence on God in the midst of affliction, which you will experience as a disciple and follower of Christ, the second four have to do with active righteousness. We could say it that way. So the second point, verses 7 through 12, is this. There's blessed reward for the active righteous. Blessed reward for the active righteous. And let's see this starting in verse 7. Blessed, flourishing, happy are the merciful, are the merciful, because they themselves will receive mercy. What does it mean to be merciful? What does it mean to be merciful? We could say it like this. The word has the idea of concern or compassion for people in need. Concern or compassion for people in need. But this isn't just the idea that I feel sorry for someone, but this also has an active component. Biblically speaking, when you're talking about mercy, uh, mercy is not just an attitude. It starts there for sure, but, but you, your heart's warmed towards someone. But then the idea is there's an action. Uh, there's acts of mercy, and there's, there's really two dimensions uh, to this. There are really two dimensions to this. One, you can see this in kind of two different parables, in, even in the Gospels. You could think of the mercy in terms of seeing someone in need and meeting their needs, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is in Luke. The word mercy is shown there, right? Uh, someone sees someone in need, they move towards them, and they fulfill what needs to be done, right? That's, a, that's one aspect of mercy, Another dimension to this, though, is that the person in need might be in need because they have sinned against you, because they have sinned against you. When someone sins against you, or you sin against someone else, you have incurred, biblically speaking, a debt. You have wronged someone, and they have a need from you. So if someone wrongs me, or uh, someone wrongs me, they've incurred a, a relational debt to me, and they have need for me to forgive them and to not exact all that I could. And this is God's mercy. So if you think even fast forward in the book of Matthew, the parable of the unforgiving servant. This is the idea that the, 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 the master, the, he's, this master's got the servant that this guy owes an unbelievable amount, unpayable amount. And yet the master says, yeah, I had compassion on you. I had mercy on you. You had a need to be forgiven and i met that need. So there's there's the multiple dimensions of mercy. It's the idea of people being in need and moving not only internally but externally to meet that need out of compassion. Out of compassion. And Jesus says the good life the good life is for the merciful. Blessed are the merciful. Those who display mercy those who display mercy. Why? Because they shall receive mercy. They shall receive mercy. The idea is that God will grant mercy. Now, the logic here, you have to understand the logic. The logic is not I'm going to be merciful, God owes me because I was merciful to someone else, so God owes me, and God's going to be merciful to me. But the idea is, remember who Jesus is speaking to, he's speaking to those who have heeded Jesus' message in chapter 4. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Or even go back to chapter 3 in Matthew. What was, was the exact same message as John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Right? The, the axe is laid at the, fruit of, at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit will be um, cut down and thrown into the fire. God's judgment is coming with his kingdom. How do you escape it? Only through Repentance. And so those who are repentant, they, those who are following uh, Christ, they've turned allegiance from sin and self, and they are follow, they're entrusting themselves to God, they're entrusting themselves to Christ and following Christ, they have been told that you will receive mercy. God will give you mercy. So if you understand that God has given mercy to you because he has saved you in repenting and following Christ, he's going to save you in the future judgment, then of all people, we ought to be the most merciful people there are. If we understand our need before God, our need to be forgiven, our need to be changed from those who love wickedness to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, if we understand the mercy that God will, has shown us and will show us, We ought to be the most merciful people. And as you display that mercy, right? You're showing, I'm a disciple. I'm following Christ. And those who are merciful, those who see others in need in a variety of contexts, whether that's the need for forgiveness, the need for uh, practical needs, uh, someone is in need, and we move towards them. We do so because we realize we have been shown mercy as Jesus' disciples, and we will be shown mercy in the future. Someone who lives mercifully, shows mercy, will receive mercy. That is the flourishing life, to show mercy, which goes against our world's mindset, isn't it? Take vengeance. Seize what's yours. This is your right. Exact, to the uttermost degree, what is you deserve. And Jesus says, no, no, The flourishing life, the blessed life, is when you show mercy, because you realize you need mercy. God has shown you mercy, and he will show you mercy in the future. In your dealings with others, are you merciful as God has shown mercy to you? As God has shown mercy to you. We, of all people as Christians, must be the most merciful people. Next, we see this, verse 8. Blessed are the, the clean or the pure with reference to the heart, because they themselves will see God. Blessed are the clean or the pure with reference to the heart, because they themselves will see God. Now, like what we saw last week, we had a couple of those Beatitudes where there was an Old Testament background in Isaiah 61, uh, Psalm 37. There's an Old Testament background here as well. Surprise, surprise. So let's go ahead and turn back to that Old Testament background, which I believe is in Psalm 24. Psalm 24. And Psalm 24. In verse 3, David poses this question. He's actually, this is the second psalm, he's posed this question. The other psalm is Psalm 15, they're parallel. But he's posing this question in verse 3, it says this, Psalm 24, verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh? And who shall stand in his holy place. And the idea is, uh, it's the idea of the temple again, right? Uh, The temple and the tabernacle, that theme starting in Eden, where you have the Garden of Eden as God's temple dwelling uh, in his concentrated manifestation of his presence with his people. And then we see that at Mount Sinai, and then the tabernacle, and then the temple. The idea is, how do you get near to God? How do you draw near to God? How can you dwell with him? Because God is the ultimate treasure of the universe, so how do you draw near to him? Who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh, and who shall stand in his holy place, his sanctuary? And we get the answer in verse 4 and 5. He who has a clean hands and a pure heart. But notice how that's explained a little bit more. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. You see the answer there of uh, who's going to dwell near the Lord, uh, it's, it's multifaceted. In the sense that clean hands, so that's your action, a pure heart, with a pure heart emphasizing, it's not just the actions, but it's the motives that come from within. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false, that's internal, And who does not swear deceitfully, his action with others. And so I think what Jesus is doing, and, and if you were to look at Psalm 15, the parallel to Psalm 24, you would see a similar answer, that the idea of the pure in heart, it's the idea of actions, actions towards others that come from a pure heart, or what we would call integrity, integrity of action. We know that we, as human beings, we can do the right external thing from a bad motive, right? We can do do what is right and what looks good on the outside, but have a wrong motive, a wrong heart, a wrong attitude on the inside. And what is Jesus saying? I think he's kind of having a a play on words here, right? Who sees your actions? Who sees your motivation? only God, right? God sees your motivation alone. So if you want to draw near to God, you want to see God, you have to have a clean heart. You have to have a pure heart in the sense that you're not only acting in righteousness, but that righteous action comes from a true heart, a pure heart, a clean heart. Integrity of action. Is what you're doing and what's going on in your heart aligned? Are they aligned? And look at what Jesus says. Blessed are the pure in heart. They act from integrity of action, cleanness uh, in their motives. Why? Why are they flourishing? Why are they happy? Why is that the best life, to be pure in heart, to have integrity of action? For they shall see God. No one sees God and lives in the Old Testament. Moses, uh, God says that to Moses, no one can see me and live because of sin, because of a lack of righteousness. But if you understand what seeing God means, it is the most joyful treasure. It is, it is, it is scary because we are sinners and we cannot draw near to God, but if we were able to, and that's really the, the main problem that the, all of Scripture, that the idea of exile is getting at, God is the greatest treasure to see him, to behold him, to know him. Heaven is good, not because of the streets of gold, not because of the people who are there, in the sense of anyone other than the triune God. If if you were happy with heaven and God were not there, you do not know God. Because God is your greatest treasure. He is the greatest treasure in the universe. God alone sees the heart. And Christ's disciples, those who have repented from sin and self and come to Christ, the one who fulfills all righteousness, not perfectly, but characteristically, they are pure in heart. They have an internal alignment with their external actions, and they have the joy, the hope, looking forward to the future, and the future of that kingdom, the picture that Revelation paints of being in the new Eden, the new heavens, the new earth, enjoying God's presence for all eternity. Do your actions, whether towards God or towards others, do, do your actions stem from a heart of integrity or does your heart hide motives and desires? Do your actions stem from a heart of integrity? Or does God, your heart hide motives and desires? God alone sees those, heart, those motives and those desires. And only through coming to Christ himself, only through repentance, only through following Christ, can you have purity of heart. And if you do, you have the hope, the joy of looking forward to seeing God face to face in the most pure way possible. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, because they themselves will be called sons of God. What's a peacemaker? Well, here the idea is peace, peacemaking, right? What do you need to make peace for? You need to make peace because there's there's two parties in opposition to each other, right? There's two parties in opposition to each other. Uh, So that could happen in a lot of different ways, right? That That could happen between country and country. It could happen between person and person. It could happen between person and God, right? There's all sorts of ways. There's not peace in the world. There was peace at the beginning, fullness, wholeness. But since sin has entered the world, what is sin? Sin is not just doing naughty things. Sin is an offense against the holy God. It's a slap in the face to the God of the universe. It's rebellion against him. It is active warfare. It is active warfare. And then that, you think about that in Genesis 3, right? Genesis 3, we've got the fall. There's now active warfare between God and man, even though he provides a way. But then what what do you see in Genesis 4? Now there's also warfare between man and man, too. You see Cain and Abel. And so what do we see in Scripture? This is amazing. Who is the ultimate peacemaker? It's God himself, isn't it? He moves, God moves in redemptive history to make peace first and foremost between himself and man. He's the initiator. It's not like, uh, well, let's, let's have a parlay and let's agree to terms. No, this is the idea that God, uh, the other side doesn't want peace at all. He is actively pursuing it despite abuse to himself. He is actively pursuing that peace between God and man, and then, ultimately, between man and man as well. That's who God is. He's a peacemaker. And so you think about, uh, what would it look like to be a peacemaker in our lives? What would that look like? Well, someone has, uh, there's multiple ways we could fail to have peace with someone else, right? That we would have open hostility or at least tension with someone else. That could be between me and another person, It could be uh, maybe I as a third party, I see two people warring uh, or, or, or arguing or having tension with each other. That would be a failure of peace. Or I could see someone who has a broken peace, open hostility with God, right? It could be with me and them. It could be between two others, or it could be between that person and God. And so what is a peace Maker do. Well, Christ's disciples, those who have repented, those who are following Him, they're going to pursue peace, pursue that reconciliation with others. What does that look like, right? Uh, working on my end. So uh, if I have conflict in someone else's uh, with someone else, uh, there's some sort of break there in the relationship. What did God do? He moved first. So I'm going to move first in pursuing a reconciliation in that relationship. Or if I see two others warring, especially Christians, Christians who are broken, this happens in the church. Sadly, it does, right? We, we break a relationship, we have tension in our relationship, and we don't address it. The two sides are just kind of miffed at each other, and they never address it. They never deal with it. That's not how God acts. God initiates. God works in bringing people together. And even a third party might come in and say, look, you are disciples of Christ. You are following Christ. You've experienced God's peace. He has reconciled you. You need peace in your relationships. Or we could even say the other one is you see someone and they're at war with God. Really, we could say an unbeliever, right? Someone who doesn't know God. And really, sharing the gospel is a form of peacemaking. Right? You're trying to, you're trying to, I've received peace from God and my relationship with him, and I want you to receive that as well. All of those would be a form of peacemaking. And if Jesus is saying, you know, now we think about this, we don't like tension, do we? We don't like relational strife. We don't, it's easier to bury something than to deal with it, isn't it? It's way easier to bury something than to deal with it. But Jesus says, you want to, and you're like, I don't even want to touch that. I don't want to even touch that with a 10-foot pole because it's going to explode, right? But Jesus says, blessed, happy, flourishing are the peacemakers. Even though it's hard, why? Because in the future, they shall be called sons of God, children of God. God is a peacemaker, and those who know God as his children truly, will display that action, that attitude of peacemaking. They shall be called sons of God. Again, it's not as if, uh, well, I'm making a bunch of peace, so God's got to call me a son. No, the idea is if you repent and turn your allegiance from sin and self, and you're entrusting yourself to Christ and to God, he makes you into a peacemaker. You display that character in your life, and as you see that, not perfectly, but characteristically, you can be assured that I know God. I'm a child of God. I'm a son or daughter of God, and I'm displaying that character. Do you seek peace with others, between others, and between God and man? Is that characteristic of your life, especially within the church, in our relationships with each other? We're, I'm going to tell you this, we're going to sin against each other. I'm going to sin against you. I don't want to, but it's going to happen. You're going to sin against me. You're going to sin against each other. We must display God's character as peacemakers. Finally, and kind of what's interesting here, you know, I've said there's, there's two groups of four, and you're saying, wait a minute, there's another blessed. There's nine blesseds. Why, why are you saying there's, there's only eight? Well, it's because in verses 10 through 12, Everything is oriented around the same idea. There's one word that's repeated three times, each, one each in each of the verses, and that word is persecuted. Persecuted. And what Jesus is doing, he's kind of culminating, he's kind of culminating the Beatitudes in this, and he's focusing on this idea of persecution. Now, why is that? Well, it kind of goes back to what we said about the Beatitudes as a whole. Why is Jesus speaking this way? Because what is he doing? He's reprogramming his disciples' minds. Jesus knows what he's going to undergo. Jesus is poor in spirit. Jesus is mourning. Jesus is meek. Jesus hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Jesus is merciful. Jesus is pure in heart. Jesus is a peacemaker. And you're like, wow, if someone pursued all of that, the world would love that person, wouldn't they? or not. In fact, the world will hate someone who hungers and thirsts for such righteousness, or displays that righteousness, because it shows, it's a mirror, right? It shows them, I'm not righteous, I have sin, and this person is threatening me. They're righteous, they're right, they're good, they're threatening me, therefore I need to attack them. And that's what happened to Jesus, isn't it? And Jesus knows that's what's going to happen to him, and so he's putting in his disciples' minds the mindset that will allow them to go through this, that will allow them to go through this affliction. And so he ends here with, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. And the idea here is, remember we saw the, the end of the, the fourth, uh, back in uh, verse verse 6, it had to deal with righteousness. Here we see the other bookend, right? We see the other bookend. Righteousness is mentioned again. Here the idea is that active righteousness, as you're a peacemaker, as you're pure in heart, in your relationships with others, as, as you are merciful, you're displaying an active righteousness in the world, and you're going to be persecuted for it. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of Righteousness as God defines righteousness, that which is aligned to him and to his character. Why? Why are you blessed? That is not a good state. We don't like to be persecuted. It's not like being persecuted is inherently good. But what does Jesus say? He ends with the same promise that the first beatitude had. We see that bookends structure again. Because of them, belonging to them, is the kingdom of the heavens the way you make it through persecution, which will come if you follow Jesus, for doing righteousness, doing good things that are aligned with God, the way you make it is you remember, this is actually, I don't enjoy persecution, but what does it point to? It points to the fact that I have a share in the future kingdom that Jesus will bring. And then, verse 11 and 12, just expand on this idea. They just unpack it more, because this is the most countercultural beatitude that you could think of. We don't like to be persecuted. We don't like conflict. We don't want trouble. And Jesus is saying, actually, if you experience trouble, you're living the blessed life because you're showing that you have a share. If if, If you're experiencing trouble for the sake of righteousness, not just trouble in general, but for the sake of righteousness, you will have the kingdom of heaven. And then he elaborates. Verse 11, notice he switches. Blessed flourishing are you. He just changed from the third person to the second. When they revile you and they persecute you and they speak every evil against you, lying for my sake. He's just elaborating on what does persecution look like? Well, it could look like a lot of things. It could look like persecuting to death. Well, that happened with Jesus, right? It could also look like reviling, being made fun of. Uh, evil things wrongfully are spoken against you. They speak against you. Every kind of evil. They make up stories that fabricate stories about you. Lying on because of Christ. Now, notice the difference. In verse 10, you're being persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Notice here, the persecution, the verbal persecution, is for the sake of Christ. Why is that? Because all of these, as we've been saying all along, hinge on the fact that what did Christ come to do? To fulfill all righteousness. Meaning the only way you practice any of these or have any of these character qualities is through knowing Christ, knowing and following Christ as his disciple. And as that happens, you will be reviled, you will be persecuted, you will be spoken against uh, evilly and wrongfully, you'll be lied against, you'll be slandered, but you're blessed. In fact, he goes one more. Look at this. This is insane. Look at verse 12. This is the first imperative that he utters. He tells you to do this. Rejoice and exult. Be happy. This, this is this is be joyful, be happy, exult with joy when you are persecuted. Why? Not because in and of itself persecution or pain or slander or any of those things are inherently good. But why? Because your reward is much in the heavens. And then he even supports this statement: For in this way they persecuted. There's our word again the prophets who are before you. It goes back to what we were saying even last week. If you look through the Old Testament, those who are righteous, those who are following and aligned with God, we could look at the prophets as preeminent examples. What did their blessed life look like? It looked like suffering and pain. Isaiah was sawn in two. They were mocked. Jeremiah was thrown into a cistern. And so Jesus said, this is the same thing, right? Those who are aligned with God, those who are entrusting themselves to God, they've turned their allegiance from sin and self to God. How do you know you're living the right life if you're persecuted for it? If you're persecuted for it, not because persecution is inherently good, but because of what it points to in the future. Your reward is great in the heavens. We need that. We are afraid to speak of Christ. I am. I usually I struggle, right? We feel that when we say, I know I need to, but I'm afraid. We need this. And Jesus doesn't tell you, well, you might, you know, probably you won't be reviled. Probably you won't be persecuted. He says you will. He says you will, but what do you do? That's good. Not because it's good inherently. It's going to sting. It's going to hurt. But you're playing the long game. You know that, yeah, if I'm following Christ, Christ brings me to the Father. Christ brings me into his kingdom. No matter what I experience here, no matter the shame from other humans or pain or suffering or death, it doesn't matter because I have Christ. And I have, if I have Christ, I have everything he's going to bring me into that kingdom. Do you shy away from persecution and ridicule for following Christ or rejoice when it happens because it shows that you know him and your reward is great in heaven? We all need that, don't we? You need to remember. So what have we seen in these Beatitudes? He's reprogramming, Jesus is reprogramming his disciples' minds with the recognition that the flourishing, happening, happy life of discipleship is not because of what's here. In fact, it will look very hard here, and there will be affliction, but because of the future, we play the long game. So what do we do with this? This is who we should be. These are both things that we can look at our life and say, are these things in my life? And we can say, if they are, the honest answer is going to be no, right? At a certain level, no. We can say, yeah, well, I see improvement there, and I see uh, maybe some characteristic work there. That's good. And we can give thanks, and we should be giving thanks. That's what Jesus is saying. You're living the blessed life. You're living the good life, right? And yet, we also recognize that we're going to fall short. And so what do we do? Remember the whole setting of this. Repent. Follow Christ, trust that He will give the righteousness in terms of accounting righteousness to you and in terms of increasing righteousness in your life. Why? Because this is new covenant reality. He's giving the Spirit to work in your life so that these things become increasingly characteristic of your life. So we pursue these things. We pursue being poor in spirit, we pursue being merciful. And when we fail, we come back to Christ and we come back to the realities that he um, purchased through his death. Where do you need to change your understanding of blessing or flourishing as a disciple? We talked about this last week. We have a culture, even a Christian culture, that looks at, look, I have a lot of money, I have a lot of cars, I have a lot of whatever, I have security, I have a good family, and we say, I have hashtag a blessed life. And Jesus is saying, well, that's not that those things are bad and you should give thanks to God for those things, definitely. But the mark of a happy or flourishing life is these things. It's these things. Where do you need to change your understanding of what a blessing or a blessed or flourishing life looks like? Are you driven by the here and now or by the future blessings of following Christ, the kingdom and Christ himself? And then one final question. What if these character qualities are not true of you at all? What if your mindset is more that of the world? Take what's yours. You're enough. uh, you uh, You know, I'm looking for mine now. Right? That's the mindset of the world. What if you recognize this isn't true of me at all? What does that show you? Shows you you're not following Christ. You don't know Christ. Because if you do know Christ, these things will be true in your life. Not perfectly, but in increasing measure. And what's the call? The call is Matthew 4 and Matthew 3. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Turn your allegiance from sin and self for living life for yourself, finding it, trying to find your treasure here and now, and entrust yourself to Christ, the one who alone can fulfill all righteousness. You don't solve it by saying, well, I'm going I'm to do these things. You can't. You can't. Apart from God's Spirit at work within you, unless you're following Christ, unless Christ is the center of your life, you cannot be this. And there's a judgment coming. That's what Jesus said. That's what John the Baptist said. He'll say it again at the end of the sermon. There's judgment coming. Repent. Trust yourself to the King who lived the perfect life, or just life, who lived this life in your place. Trust yourself to him. Live for him. Follow him. And he will produce this in you through, your, through his spirit. Let's pray and transition to a time of taking the Lord's Supper. Lord Jesus we fail in these things but as your disciples we those who follow you we do want we do want to live this way because we love you you displayed all of these character qualities we follow you and we want to learn from you and we want to obey you and Lord guard us especially from cowardice Lord even as we see in that culminating beatitude Lord God where we're afraid. We are, I confess it, that we're afraid to speak of you. We're afraid of what people will think about us or say about us. Lord, guard us from that and help us to look to the future. Help us to look to you as our treasure. And Lord, we do ask, help us to be merciful. Help us to be pure in heart, to have our external actions aligned with what's inside. Help us to be peacemakers. Help us above all to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Lord, may that be characteristic of us as a people. We know it's only possible through what you've done on the cross and through the giving of your spirit. We thank you and we ask for this week that you would grow us Lord, that we'd be able to see ways in which we are growing. We know we're not perfect. We know we're going to fail, but you would help us to grow and to speak of you to the world. We thank you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. Thank you for the Beatitudes. Help us now as we now seek to honor you through a time of remembering your supper. In Christ's name, amen.